An evening with the Blizzard Football Quarterly, recorded on 3rd of December 2018 at the Sugar Club in Dublin, hosted by Andrew Mangan of Arsblog. We join the panel with Jonathan Wilson, Philippe Auclair and Miguel Delaney, mid-conversation, discussing the recent North London derby. moment after the Torreira goal went in after it was 4-2 when he was uh, he came up on the on the screen at, 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 uh, on our screens in the press box at the Emirates and he was sitting by himself the other coaches had sort of disappeared and he was just sitting there going yeah. as if thank yeah. god I got that right yeah 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 I mean it was a big moment for him a big game for him Miguel because Arsenal have been on this uh, very good run an unbeaten run since losing to Chelsea back in August but the record against the big teams over the years has not been quite what it should have been. And this was a game where he was able to put his stamp on his new job, his new club. And it showed that there's perhaps a bit more to uh, this Arsenal side than people thought. Well, well, that's it. I mean, even through that run, I think they, they scored some great goals and played some great football. But there was a slight sense maybe of, you know, it's just an element maybe of the fact that the top six or the big, the wealthiest six, sorry, are so much more well-resourced than everyone else in the division, which is kind of explaining the table at the moment for everyone bar Manchester United. Was it three, three, three minutes until the first Mourinho Even mentioned? Even there, seven. I mean, how <laughs> yeah. the fuck does that happen? But, but it was, it felt a little bit deceptive until basically, I suppose, they played Liverpool. And that's now two big six games in a row where Arsenal have put in two big performances and two very substantial performances. And he'd really fancy them to beat United on Wednesday. Uh, I think, but, but in terms of kind of the difference to Wenger, I mean, it feels a bit harsh at this point, I suppose, to just continue to give Wenger a kicking, given what a great he was. But from everything you hear from the training ground, from everything you hear from the club, just the differences are so striking. I mean, even in relation to what you said about um, Emery changing mid-game, I remember hearing a story from one of the first... Yeah, he basically changed more in that second half and Wenger would change yeah. an entire season. Yeah. Entire but but, 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 but to show the difference in preparation, even, there was a story from one of Wenger's first... Derby's against Pochettino and he told the Arsenal players oh, don't worry Pochettino sides all, always they always lose energy after 70 minutes which is the, which is the opposite of the truth and the players were just amazing I think, I think that was the game they lost 2-1 with Kane scoring boat late goals but even on a more basic level the players I mean like, I think Granit Jack is one of the more famous examples but throughout a lot of last season or his time at, at Arsenal he, was, he just didn't know what he was supposed to do. Like he, was, he was told basically to play in midfield, but had no defined role. And, and kind of he was a bit all at sea, which you could see in his, in his performances. Whereas now, he has a defined structure, specific instructions, and he looks at, he's one of many who look a different player. Philly, but part of why that might be the case is, as Jonathan mentioned, Lucas Torreira, yes, who indeed, is yeah. uh, £26 million pounds in the current market is a bit of a steal and has come in and... and say that given something to Arsenal that they've needed for some time. <laughs> yeah, and the, the extraordinary thing as well is that, uh, which is perhaps is, is also part of the Emery effect, is uh, the rekindling of, um, of the love affair between uh, a crowd and its team. And I think, you know, if you guys you were at, at the game, it was quite extraordinary. I've never heard uh, the Emirates being as loud as that. And I know people will think, well, a library can only be as loud as this, but it was not a library, believe me. They've sold the library a while ago. And uh, from the first time I think he came on as a sub, 
Uh, there was this kind of link. People saw in him exactly what they wanted from an Arsenal player and what had been missing since Gilberto Silva, perhaps, left the club. And, um, and they found not only a player who is this incredibly energetic uh, 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 midfielder who is so adept at interceptions and so forth, but who is also forever looking to accelerate the game and looking for the, play, the pass forward. Um, and he had been excellent in Serie A. He'd played three games for Uruguay during the World Cup, um, but not necessarily uh, showing his best qualities in those particular games. And he is, I wouldn't say he's the missing link, but he certainly uh, is a player that was missing from the Arsenal in terms of an emotional link between the crowd and the team. I know, I, I, tactically, of course, uh, technically, uh, that's very important, the stats. But even more importantly for me, it represents... A, is almost like a, a kind of impersonation or, um, of, of the kind of spirit that Emery has put in this side. This another thing which is quite striking is the difference in body language of the players on the field. Uh, and it's the idea that Arsenal could be top of the, of the league, so to speak, for high-intensity sprints is something that would yeah. ne necessarily have come to our minds um, a year well, or two ago. Where do you ago. think Mesut Ozil fits into that? <laughs> Well, there is that. Um, apparently, he's got a back problem. Again. <laughs> yeah, maybe he should watch his back. And, um, ooh. Uh, ooh. Uh, but he doesn't quite fit, obviously, in this kind of new dynamic uh, arsenal. But Lucas Torreira has been absolutely essential. Miguel, on uh, Mesut Ozil, uh, Arsenal were in a position where, with Sanchez going and uh, other contractual situations... Uh, they kind of had to keep Mesut Ozil, even uh, for the reputation of the club uh, having been the biggest yeah. signing. It's becoming more and more clear that Ozil and Unai Emery mm. aren't necessarily a good fit or the right fit. It's not to say that it can't work or won't work, but the £350,000 yeah. a week is a, a bit of an albatross around. Yeah, but I mean, uh, to be honest, it's another signal of how Arsenal have transformed in such a short space of time. Because remember going into December last year, when I suppose they would have the chance maybe to leave for free in the summer uh, with the Sanchez situation. And, and a lot of the talk was that basically Sanchez and Osler are the only two assets the club has. And if they lose them, it's desperate times. Now, I suppose at the time, the expectation was that Wenger would still, despite everything, last forever because it never looked like he was going to go. <laughs> um, but now, Sanchez, that deal looks brilliant for Arsenal because he looks completely shot. And there's all, all, a myriad of other problems at United. And Ozil now, as you say, it ju he just doesn't seem to fit into the, uh, the Emery approach. He's, just a, he's a bit too laissez-faire, a bit too lax, despite all the qualities he brings. And, and despite the fact that he probably had his best seasons with somebody... Um, and Mourinho, Mourinho. And Mourinho did want him again, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. With yeah. Mourinho at Real Madrid, he had probably his best season with him. Oh, I, I did hear, though, which that. Is a, which is also a sign that what Mourinho asks from his players... It's not necessarily what you think he's asking. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Th this kind of kind of high energy and sort of very dynamic mm. performance is not necessarily what he's asking from them because Özil can't do that. But he was fulfilling a role within the yeah. Real Madrid team and very well indeed. Uh, I did hear that Wenger was disgusted about having to pay Özil that contract. I can imagine. Mm. Yeah, but I, I think the the Özil situation is it's sort of a it's a corollary of the of a problem football has generally. With the, with the enormous disparity of resources. Because hmm. you get a player like Ozil, and w you know, the size of his contract means that realistically in the world there are 
it's certainly in, in Western Europe, there are maybe a dozen clubs can afford him. And like maybe, you know, China, Middle East, strange things can happen. But in terms of kind of your know, top level elite football, there's 10 or a dozen clubs can can yeah, afford him. Maximum. And and then, you know, he, he's... What, what would have happened if Arsenal called us bluff? What would have happened if Arsenal had gone, actually, no, we're not going to pay you. What we'll do, we'll pay you 150 grand a week. Mm. Would he have found somebody to pay him 160? I'm not sure he would. His what, agent I mean, it's an enormous gamble, yeah, but I would have loved to see a, a club do that and, and, and take the player on because his options are so limited. Yeah. Yeah, the agent was saying that he turned down a million pounds a week from China. Well, I would say that if I was his agent. I mean, being an I agent would is not say difficult. that too. It wouldn't make it any more true, though, would it? <laughs> I don't think so. Well, when was the last time actually a player of that status went to a club outside one of the obvious... Uh, well, within you, I mean... The, I think there are examples of like Oscar going to China. I was going to say Oscar, yeah. But, 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 like that's, but, but not, not in terms of yeah. going to a, a mainstream team in, in mainstream competitions. No. Carlos Tevez? To, to City. No, I mean, when he, when, when he left. Oh, to, where, to, yeah. To, yeah. Actually, well, actually, it's an amazing thing now. Te- Tevez and Mascherano, when that happened, was actually one of the, to West Ham. Mm. It was one of the most shocking signings. <laughs> it's, easy, it's actually easy to forget that, just how sensational that seemed at the time and just wouldn't mm. happen now. Jonathan, is it um, Alfredo Di Stefano going to Colombia? Yeah, but that was during a player's strike. <laughs> I mean, it, it, that was 1948. It's a very I know, sorry. <laughs> this is why it took me a long time, because it was a long time ago. I had to go through, you know, the machine. Right had through the roller. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, a, a positive for Emery, then, that he can get his team to play the way they did against Tottenham on Sunday without Ozil, who was... Seen as I don't think, I don't think it's a positive. I think it's just sort of it's it's uh, it's an effect of dropping Ozil. Mm. I mean, if he comes out before the Bournemouth game, or I say after the Bournemouth game, and says Bournemouth, Bournemouth, right? Retirement home Bournemouth, not the football club, but just the town. Retirement home Bournemouth is too physical for Mesut Ozil. Mm. <laughs> Wait, which team in the Premier League? Wait, it's, I mean, seriously, Bournemouth have committed fewer fouls than any team apart from <laughs> Manchester City and Chelsea. They're literally the least physical team who regularly don't have a ball in the Premier League. When does Ozil ever get a game? Who's the team who's less physical? I mean, in the FA Cup, teams in the Championship... Okay, Fulham. Yeah, no, fair enough, Fulham. He he didn't play at Fulham, though. Yeah, he missed a Fulham game with a back Back spasm. Problem, yeah. There's a theme. But there's one... I mean, I wanted to ask Mr. Tactics here. Okay. 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 when is the last time you saw a Premier League game where you had two managers, and I know I'm in a way repeating what you said at the beginning, but who were so reactive to what's happening on the pitch? And one of the reasons I thought why the, the game was so thrilling, genuinely thrilling, was there was a constant, you could see what was happening on the pitch was a reflection of what was happening on the bench and reciprocally. And I, I, I personally cannot think of another example in recent yeah, history. The, the only game I've, I've been at, and obviously... If you're watching on, on TV, it's, it's much harder to pick up those tactical changes as they're happening. Partly because you don't see the manager giving the instruction. Partly because you just can't see the whole pitch to see your, what, what change of shape has been made. The, the only game I can think of that's even vaguely comparison, uh, comparable is the Champions League final in 2003 between Juventus and AC Milan. Uh, but in terms of a Premier League game, no, nothing like it. I thought it was a magnificent game of football yesterday. That's, I haven't enjoyed a game as much this season. Uh, but I thought it was really high level, you know, really high quality and, and great drama. So it was magnificent. Yeah, I enjoyed it too, I have to say. <laughs> so did I. Yeah, <laughs> for some reason or other. The other game, Miguel, Liverpool uh, and Everton ended in 
bizarre fashion, quite what Jordan Pickford was doing. But the best way to win the derby and worst way to lose it, right down to the timing, the nature Mm. of the goal, the nature of the game, everything about it. Yeah. But how important is it for the Premier League that Liverpool keep on the... Well, the shirt tails of Manchester I, I, City. I, I was thinking that because actually just, just before that happened, I was thinking kind of, you know, fashioning a, a snide tweet about that. Well, that's a title race over. But it, <laughs> it would have been hard to think, would it? I mean, because it would have been the first time it's properly opened up to four points to, mm. for City. And, and it's, still, it's still difficult not to think that City will ultimately win the title by 10, 15 points. Um, so this, because there is a sense that Liverpool are just about hanging out by their fingertips almost. And, and, and there is maybe this wider argument that because their performances haven't been as good or haven't been as intense as you would associate with Klopp's Liverpool usually. And there's this feeling that maybe he's reserving that for later in the season. So he's actually consciously you know, um, maintaining their energy. And then from February, they might, we might see the, kind of the proper Klopp pressing. But it's, it's, it still just feels like just about hanging on. Basically, they are full pelt against a team that's kind of going from a light jog. Yeah. Well, I mean, when you look at it, Philippe, in Premier League terms, um, they're both unbeaten this season, so we'll hope that that changes pretty soon. But, um, (laughs) you know, it is, uh, from a competitive point of view, a competition point of view, um, it would be uh, strange to see just one team go as far out in front as many people fear City will. You know, you think back to when it was Arsenal-Manchester United and it was basically a two-team league and then it became three or four teams who could potentially win the league. Then we have a big six and now that big we six... We have a big one. Big, there's a big one. Yeah, it's a big one. And there is, a, I think, big one, not bag one. Sorry, I've been watching Wild Wild Country. If you haven't seen the documentary about the orange people, watch it. Uh, the big one. Yes, uh, I think there is there is a point at which you you start thinking: Are we going? To, what are, are we seeing in the Premier League? A kind of um, turbocharged League One, you know, uh, Paris with Manchester City in the role of Paris Saint Germain. They're so far ahead of the competition uh, that people are literally hanging by the coattails. And these are very very long tails, by the way. Um, and, and you can feel there is a moment where Liverpool, this is not quite going to work. I mean, you just have to see Klopp's reaction. Yeah. It was a miracle. And there have been a few uh, recently. Uh, Sturridge's goal at, uh, at Chelsea, for yeah, example. Yeah. And the penalty that Mahrez missed. Uh, yes, absolutely. So um, it, it's, it's, there is a feeling that perhaps it's becoming a bit uncompetitive. On the other hand, I think there might be a moment in the spring when the real objective of Manchester City's mm-hmm. campaign is going to show, which is the Champions League, and this might have an impact on the performances in the Premier League. Whereas Liverpool, to be honest, I think if I were them, I, mean, I think most Liverpool fans would agree with that, and I'm not a Liverpool fan, uh, would be that the league is the number one objective this but year. This is a particularly depressing thing at the moment. Uh, even on Saturday when they played Bournemouth, there was only, what, seven, seven or eight minutes when there was a sense, hang on, there might actually be a game here. It's basically every single match against the majority of the Premier League has just become so routine for City to a level we've never seen before. I think the only difference between City and PSG or City and Bayern in Germany is that the the gulf is only partly structural. So PSG are way, way... I mean, what, 16 points clear a second in France? (sighs) They they beat Bordeaux yesterday, right? I mean, you know, they, they, they basically lost their first two points on this weekend. Okay, so, so they, 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 drew, they drew against Bordeaux, did they? Yeah. Okay, 14 points clear then. Um, so, 
No, no, because I, I remember tweeting on Saturday that Manchester United were 16 points behind City, but in France they'd be second if they were 16 <laughs> points behind the leaders. <laughs> so I mean, there's that difference. But OK, 14 points. Um, but it's because they're much, much richer than anybody else. Now, City obviously have an advantage of resources. If you are essentially the football team of a state, as they are, then that gives you a massive advantage. But it's not so much more... I mean, they still pay less wages than Manchester United, for instance. City do not have the massive financial advantages that PSG or have or Juve do or Bayern do and their, their advantage is they've got a lot of money but they've also got a brilliant coach and they've spent the money incredibly well. well. But again, again what's depressing about City is it, it feels like they're the first super wealthy team to actually use the money in a focused intelligent way which they've done basically by I remember an agent describing to me who worked at Barcelona, they basically kind of co-opted the Facebook of football or the Apple of football and took all of Barca's best of executives to, you know, to bring over a ready-made football structure and that's Pretty much what's happened. Yeah, long-term planning. It's something involved. Chelsea didn't do. So mm. Long-term, well, yeah, as they long were as it works. When, you know, when Mancini was sacked and they said, oh, we need a more holistic approach, mm. everybody mocked them. This is what happens if you have a holistic approach. If every bit of the club is pulling in the same direction, yeah. you get a brilliant first team, you get a coach who fits with the players, you get an academy which is producing players who it turns out can't get in the team, so they go off in a brilliant for Borussia Dortmund. You know, the whole thing works at City, whether you like them or not. It's a great example of how to run a club if you have a budget that big. But for Liverpool, do you think there's any chance that they might scratch that itch this season if City are distracted by the Champions League? It's wishful thinking. I think it's wishful thinking. Um, But the the, the very fact that they are in that position right now, it leads me to some hope, which I don't know if it's grounded in... In, in properly objective vision of what, what I've seen. Uh, they, they are struggling so much in most of their games. You, genu- you know, you were talking fingertips, it's fingernails, really. And um, they only last that long. They're looking very short, the fingernails. But yes, there is a chance. Should Manchester City um, have some very big games in the spring again and the Champions League become the major objective and Liverpool can hang on until then? Maybe. Just maybe. But they have, I mean, there, there, there are problems. I mean, which we're starting to see now, particularly in the midfield. People are talking a lot about the, um, uh, the, the forwards misfiring and so forth. Um, but I think after what we saw against yeah. PSG, for example, in the Champions League, and what we've seen as well, to a lesser extent in the, in, in, in the Premier League, uh, you do get a feeling that this team can only go that far. They are, they are planned, programmed for a certain type of football, and there are moments when it's a little bit dodgier. I mean, it doesn't quite happen. So how does the Premier League continue to sell the product of being the best league in the world if there's only one team that's going to win it? Because we had years? a fantastic game on, Saturday, on Sunday, for example. That was a great game, but, yeah. you know. There have been uh, a few. I mean, it, it can get away with it if this is relatively short term. If this is three or four years, mm. then you can say, look, we're watching something absolutely magnificent. However sickened we may be by how it's financed, we are watching some extraordinary football. But there does come a point that keeps on going on that, yeah, I, I mean, I don't, but people are weird, right? You've noticed this. Like, <laughs> no, but I see, I, I would think that what you want to watch in a game of football is two teams of roughly equal standards like, hammering against each other. Yeah. But it, the, a, lot, a lot of fans, and maybe this is fans in, in new territories, seem to just want to watch the team they support batter opponents. Um, you know, it's, it's like, and I suppose that's always been there in sport. If you think back to, yeah, you know, when 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 the Romans went to the uh, the amphitheatre, 
the Christians weren't putting up a huge fight against the lions. The odds were stacked against them, in fairness, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was like every cup third round every fucking week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Maybe we need more lions in the Premier League. That could be the solution. We're going to uh, take a question from the floor now. So if anyone has a question about Premier League, about what's happened this weekend, you can stick your hand up. And we've got a guy with a microphone who'll come around. If you're uh, Ed Woodward, you come to your senses, and Mourinho's out, who do you hire tomorrow? Whoa. Who's on the market? Arsene Wenger. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that would genuinely be brilliant. We, we, we were talking about this... Uh, that would be very, very was funny. Was it also talking about this yesterday? Anyway, I was having this discussion yesterday. Um, because United are in a, in a very strange position. Yeah. I don't honestly know what they're doing. They're not <laughs> going to win the league this season. They're eight points off fourth, and no immediate prospect of them closing that gap. So you'd think United would be desperate to get... In the, at the very least, to get in the Champions League next season, to finish in the top four. I mean, unless they somehow win the Champions League this year to get in the Champions League, which... Again, if you're struggling to beat young boys of Bern, then probably you're not going to be beating Real Madrid and Barcelona in the summer. Maybe you need somebody who is more sympathetic to the players, is more like an arm around the shoulders like Antonio Conte. (laughs) (laughs) So, so, I mean, my point about Mourinho is, why have they not already sacked him? What what are they doing to keep him in the job? And so the only explanation is that the, the Glazers... Are looking to sell, yeah, well, and, and they think if we're going to get three and a half billion for the club, actually another yeah. twenty million for being in the Champions League isn't going to make that yeah. much of a difference. And there are, there are, yeah, that, that's two parts of basically. One is they've always waited until the manager can't get top four because they're stingy in that way, and secondly because and everyone is talking about it. I mean, it's not some. It's been reported a bit, but not, I suppose not to the extent it's actually been so widely discussed that a, a lot of people do think United could be sold in the next year uh, for four billion. Even Mesut Ozil couldn't afford that. <laughs> not, not even. To, to, to answer the question, I'd go Pochettino. I think you know. I think there's so much of it that seems to fit. I mean, that, that's they're not going to get him till the summer. No, no, yeah. And so then, yeah, who, is it worth bringing somebody in for the remaining months of the season to try and catapult them into the top four? But we've still haven't answered the question. Should it be Wenger or should it be Antonio Conte or should it be anybody <laughs> or, else? Or if Ferguson's all right. Why not get Fergie back? <laughs> no, but I mean, that, that's what they did with Busby. Repeatedly, but, but, they brought Busby uh, but, back. And because as much as anything, United, it feels like, whatever about finishing top four, they just need a bit of life about the place again. Because it's such a, they're such a dreadful team to watch. The atmosphere around the place is so bad. And they just need a bit, a bit of energy again, as much as anything. If only somebody could have known Mourinho might have that effect <laughs> on a football club <laughs> before they hired him. Have we got any other questions? Have we got another one? Or have we got... Oh, we've got one here. Yeah. Uh, I asked a question on Twitter, but um, I'll leave that if you want to answer it separately. But like, how much do you think in management in right now is adapting to what other managers are doing, and how much is it is implementing your own style? Like take Emery, for instance. There's the example of there's his own style, but the tactical changes and all that against Pochettino and all that. How much of a ba- balancing act is that? I think I think it's always been a balancing act. I think. Um, you get some managers who are very dogmatic and something like Guardiola for instance can afford to be quite dogmatic because yeah, A, his players are, yeah, are as good as anybody else in the league if not better and B, his style is, is one that is 
It's sort of naturally imposed. But even he will make tweaks. Mm. And you saw the game at Anfield. Yeah, he made pretty major tweaks. So he went essentially to a, to a 4-4-2 that day. So I, I think you as a manager, you will always have your, your ideas, your philosophy, your, your, your sort of concept of how you want to play. But you, you always have to look at the opposition. You have to look at your players. You have to look at what you're trying to get out of the game. You've got to look at the conditions. So, I mean, Guardiola couldn't play that football if he was playing against Brian Clough's Derby County at the baseball ground in 1973. You just couldn't do it because the pitch is, t- is too muddy. So you've always got to adjust. So, yeah, it's always a balancing act between... You know, nobody sh- nobody's ever going to be entirely reactive. Nobody's going to be entirely proactive. You've got to you know, manage your basic idea according to the circumstance. Wasn't that Wenger's thing? It was always about playing the game the way he wanted to play it and not paying too much attention Absolutely. to what the opposition were doing. Absolutely. It's a story I've told many times before, so I'm going to tell it again. <laughs> um, before the, um, what that could have been his finest hour at the Arsenal, uh, which was the 2006 uh, Champions League final, um, I, I went to see him with a couple of uh, French journalist friends and we were talking about the preparation to the game. And this was... Keep this in mind, this was literally 48 hours before the final, and we asked the question, what have you done to prepare for this game against you know, Barcelona? Not a bad team, pretty big players. And he answered, we'll have a look at the way they play tomorrow morning with my, my assistants. Basically, they had done absolutely no work whatsoever on Barcelona. And you would think perhaps it's because he thinks that his players themselves have been watching Barcelona on the telly all the time, but players don't do that. Players, you know, if you're a plumber, you don't do your friend's plumbing for free. Uh, if you're a football player, you don't watch football all the time, or you're, you're a bit weird. And uh, Actually, yeah, I, There um, are some weird people around, I quite agree with that, and the, you know, there are four of them here, and about... 200 there, but the, that's not what I'm talking about. He just had just on this idea of players watching games, so and coaches. Um, I, I, I'm doing I'm doing a book on on Hungarian football, and there's there a we coach, go. There's a coach. <laughs> there we go. Hungarian football between 1930 and 1960 as well. 1960 and 1956, yeah, the Golden Age, um, the Wilsonian era. <laughs> and there's a I, I think the greatest of those Hungarian coaches, a guy called Martin Bukovi. And he gave a series of interviews in a Croatian newspaper. He was managing um, Grajanski Zagreb, which is the same became Dinamo Zagreb. And in 1943, he's interviewed about his use of a WM, which was very controversial in Croatia at the time, as, as you can imagine. <laughs> and he said, people don't want to admit this, but I have to tell you, players don't watch football, they don't think about football. I have to do it all for them. And I don't think players have changed in 75 years. Nope. They haven't, and so to the answer to that was, um, well, Wenger didn't do it at all. No. I think they introduced video sessions, uh, I think Spermatozaka, who, who told um, Rafi Honigstein that, uh, something like three years ago was the first time they had video sessions to uh, study opponents. What video? Oh, they were actually studying opponents, not just watching It's like, a you movie. know, there's like a, there's a screen, yeah. and you know, like this, yeah. and then you're watching people play, and you say, this guy, you're playing against him next Saturday, wow. And that was about the extent of the uh, preparation. We believed in the fact that you have to impose your style of play. And, you know, to be fair, it brought some results with the right players. But it can also be a recipe, a recipe for disaster when the players are but not of the no, same calibre. It brought results up until around about 2005. Yeah. And then the rest of the world has moved on. I mean, I, I think video analysis was, was something that... I mean, for instance, when... Um, 
uh, when, when Bielsa gets to uh, Vela Sarsfield in 1997 or 98? 97, I think. Um, one of the things he asked for, and it was seen as being revolutionary, and it was all over the papers of, you know, what is this crazy man doing? And he, he asked for a, a video machine and a computer so he could actually, you know, clip bits of video and, and, and watch them on the computer. Or, or editing software. I don't know. I don't know the words. But some kind of way of editing video anyway. And nobody even thought of that in Argentinian yeah. football before. And so, you know, when Wenger first gets to Arsenal, presumably it's a, it's a similar picture. And, and why would you bother with video analysis? It's boring. It's, it's really hard work. Yeah, and also... It's not necessary. That point. And it wasn't necessary. Yeah. But the then once everybody's doing it, yeah, exactly. it is yeah. necessary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you could argue that one of the main um, uh, means through which Bill Shankly made in Liverpool into uh, one of the great teams of the 70s and then, you know, st started the foundations, build the foundations for the great team of the uh, late 70s and early 80s because he was one of the few managers of his time who reacted that this was the defeat against Ajax, 65-66 uh, uh, Champions, uh, Champions League European Cup and he thought we'd better start looking at what the way our opponents are playing and they were one of the very few clubs at the time who actually took bothered to actually watch what their opponents were doing in Europe as well as in England and the result of that was a team that was more fluid tactically yeah. fluid than any other of its time and the result of that was domination in England and in Europe yeah I mean I to go on a slight tangent that's precisely why the away goal was introduced as well because, because no one scouted so everyone turned up to these exotic away grounds and oh we better, we better keep a tight first half so it led to a lot of defensive games so to try and bring this out UEFA brought in the, the away goal it's a terrible rule I think. Now, now, but now it's a terrible rule yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Miguel you're going to the um, Super Classico yeah well uh, I was almost that one two yeah almost <laughs> you, you should well, we're talking to two Super Classico survivors so. <laughs> That's the word which is used these days. Yeah, okay. okay. They survived it. Right. <laughs> Hashtag survivor. Yeah. Hashtag um, It's taking place in Madrid. Yeah. Uh, they managed not to have it in the uh, football crazy capital of Doha, or city of Doha, which is such great history. But it's in Madrid. Um, tell us a little bit about what this game is going to mean there and how the atmosphere is going to be different considering how far away it is from where it probably should be played. Well, in terms of atmosphere, it'll probably be at least a passable replica because I, I think when Barca played Boca in a friendly, I think it was in the summer, or maybe the previous summer, there was 20,000 Boca fans there and it was a proper atmosphere, but obviously nothing like what the Mon Monumental would have been or nothing like even the training session at the Bombonera was three days before the scheduled uh, initial final. Um, in, ter in terms of where it's going to be played now, I actually think, I wrote this on Friday for the Independent, but this could be one of the most significant fixtures in, in the evolution of, I suppose, more so the football business rather than football, because I do think, I mean, it's, it, it sets a precedent now and gives anyone who wants to move any fixture a strong argument. And pre previously, you needed FIFA, well, you needed the dispensation of your governing body which obviously would have to go then above that to FIFA, to move a game outside your jurisdiction. This was basically a carve-up between FIFA, Conmebol, La Liga, who obviously want to move games themselves, Real Madrid and the Spanish Federation to play in Madrid and to move. And I, as, I mean, as Ole, the, the, the Argentinian newspaper had, uh, their front page, the day of the decision was uh, Copa Conquistadores, given that the Copa Libertadores is named after... <laughs> The, you know, the, those who liberated South America from mm. empires like Spain. 
so yeah, I, I, but beyond that, beyond the cultural offence of that, I do think it just sets a very dodgy precedent that is all the more worrying in the context of stuff like football leaks, where mm. basically, I, I think it just sets us on the road to get, eventually getting to a point where all the biggest fixtures are basically moved around where yeah. the most money is, and you know, Doha, Tokyo, New York, which is you know. <laughs> It's, not, it's maybe nice in terms of the show, but in terms of what football is, it's uh, considering the, uh, continues the stratification of the game. Sure, and we're going to talk a bit more about football leaks in, in part two. But mm. Jonathan, is it inevitable that this is going to happen? Um, the business interest and the money side of the game, the people running the game, are always going to come out on top despite the objections, I guess, of of people who really care about the game, about fans uh, who would object to the Game 39, the La Liga thing. Um, nobody wants it apart from the people who can see a way to make money from it. I, I think, unfortunately, yes. Um, I mean, in this instance, there is a level of logic in moving it out of Buenos Aires. I, I, I get that Argentinian police and the Ministry of Justice and whoever's fault that was did not manage to put on the game. Um, and so you, you need to, to, to take action to make sure the game can happen. It's probably not a bad idea to, to get the game away from Buenos Aires where you know, you're not just going to have 70,000 fans turning up for 70,000 stadium. You're going to get 100,000, 120,000 plus 60,000 more going to Boca to see them off. You have, you've have got literally hundreds of thousands of fans moving about the city that day. I can see why, once the game's been called off twice, you probably do have to move it. Moving it out of South America, I think, is really dangerous for all the reasons that Miguel's outlined. I think it would have been very nice to have it in Montevideo, or maybe you think that's too close to Buenos Aires. Asuncion? Asuncion? In, in Asuncion, or, or in, in Santiago, or, you know... There's a lot of stadiums in South America you could use. Um, Santiago's hosted the Copa America final in 2015. They'll host Libertadores final next year when it goes to being one-legged. So it is a stadium that has the capacity to host a game of that magnitude. The Centenario in Montevideo has always traditionally been sort of South American football's home from a moment it hosted the World Cup final in, in 1930. Um, so I, I could see the logic of that. I can kind of see the logic of playing in Abu Dhabi on the grounds that the, the Club World Cup was happening straight afterwards, so you could have used that as an excuse. Yeah. I think Doha would have been a disaster. And I think Madrid actually probably is a disaster. It just doesn't look quite as much of a disaster to us because we associate Madrid with football and the fact it's Spanish-speaking, I guess, in a way that, that, that Doha and Qatar just aren't. You, you, and, but, and the real problem with Doha as well is Boca is sponsored by Qatar Airways. Yeah. So, you know, the, these things are not, they're not discreet. Everything is intertwined. That if you have money, you get your claws into people, into clubs, into institutions, and you begin to have an influence on them. And sometimes that's above board, and sometimes it isn't. And sometimes even if it is above board, it's not healthy. So I think it's an enormous worry. Mm. Um, and I think in terms of playing games uh, overseas, play, yeah, I'm not sure the 39th game will happen. I think there's such opposition to that 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 would be... Um, Scudamore's gone now as well. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, but Scudamore would argue, and I, I have to say, I, I, I quite like Scudamore whenever I met him. I always found him quite impressive. I think his argument was it's a way of trying to funnel some money 
down at the bottom end of the Premier League to try and keep it relatively competitive. And, well, you shake your head and you pull a face and it's not pretty. (laughs) And, like, if the wind changes, Miguel, it'll stay like that. Um, But actually, everything Scudamore did, I think, was trying to resist the greed of the big clubs. I I think he genuinely understood the importance of having a competitive league. Um, So I've got a little bit of of sympathy with him. Um, But where I think we are going, and I think this is inevitable in 10 years or 20 years is we will have a Super League and those games will, will not be fixed in, you know, in Manchester United will not always play in Manchester, Liverpool will not always play in Liverpool. I, I, I think it's inevitable that will happen. Uh, and I know I've been talking for ages, but if you look at, say, South Africa, where the biggest game is Orlando Pirates against Kaiser Chiefs, it's been a long time since that game was restricted to being played in Johannesburg or Soweto. It goes all over the place because they have fans across the country so they have become dislocated from the locations in which they were born. And I suspect the same will, will happen to the European clubs we know. Yeah, but I mean, that's the dangerous thing, isn't it? That, you know, football clubs are very... They're part of the communities, even if they are these gigantic behemoths and nowadays. Not all of them. Not all of them, sure. No. But, you know, people have a, a oh, association yes, locally with, with their clubs. Link, absolutely. But that's interesting in relation to the Manchester City thing as well. And I suppose even the idea of how clubs are owned. I mean, basically, sp- some Spanish clubs got lucky in that they became, because of the structures, there's four clubs that are ba- directly owned by their fans, which is Real Madrid, Barcelona, Osasuna, Athletic Bilbao, something that could never have happened in England because of the legislature. But one of the, uh, Soriano basically had this big idea for Manchester City. Well, he had an idea for a football club. He wanted to do Barcelona, which is this idea of a global enterprise. Well, I think they, they call it well, localisation, or localisation, isn't it? Where... It's basically buying a club in every continent, having the same branding as that club, but just being, a, just being essentially a franchise. And Barcelona, I suppose, were essentially... There was too much accountability to the club, and they were too locally based to do it. There was, there was too much power still based in the, in the local community. Whereas at City, because of what they became, that, that wasn't the case. So he now has, has this grand experiment where they own a, a country in every continent. And, well, two in South America, isn't it? Yeah, we've got a team in, in Uruguay and in Ecuador. Yeah. Top of where Australia, but, but, they've but, got, yeah. yeah, but but even that facilitates, but even that facilitates the idea. Girona, uh, yeah. Melbourne, New York City Football Club, yeah. So but but in, in the future, it makes it easier for a club like City to unanchor themselves from where they're historically based. I mean, it, and this is a, a slightly odd thing. I think if we you know, if we do get a Super League, if it is a quasi franchise system where there is no promotion and relegation, or or where it's very limited, for, you know, the, the changes to the to the to the makeup of, of, of the division. If you're gonna if you're gonna have franchises, do you want two franchises in Manchester? No, of course you don't. You want to spread it about. So if City is a little bit looser in its connection to Manchester by then, that is advantageous to the to the, to the money men. Um, I, mean, I was we were sort of joking about this in Buenos Aires that if you got some kind of global Super League, you wouldn't have Boca and River. You don't want two teams eight miles apart in Buenos Aires. You want a team in Buenos Aires. You want a team in Rio. San Paolo and Rio. You probably don't even want a team in Montevideo. Um, and that is, you know, I think is a, is a terrible thing for, 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 you know, for somebody who, who, who thinks the, the organic nature of football clubs, the fact they have grown up in their community and represent something to that community, 
mm. um, that that will be lost. We were before we, we we came here. We were thinking we've got to find some um, light-hearted topics. And now <laughs> I feel like I want a, a length of rope, basically, <laughs> and uh, or several lengths of rope. But there, there there will come a moment where we genuinely have to think, and I think for ourselves and for yourselves too, um, where we want to do a mic drop. Is honestly we've had enough of this nonsense, this bullshit. It's not us. It's not football. It's not what we love in football. And I think we're coming very, very close to that point. But there is a debate. At what point does some kind of turn off happen? I suppose that's related as well to even clubs like City, just and the predictability of the Premier League in terms of how many points the big six get off the other fourteen. But at what point do we see the, the kind of the market start about people start to turn away? Because all these changes are, are sort of incremental in a way. It's not yeah. like they're just knocking it on the head from well, one day to the next. No, they're, they're it's just so we get beaten down by... But no, the and, then, and then you've got, I mean, of course, because uh, come the ball, I mean, yeah. the South American Confederation, which is uh, conducted by... I mean, I, I can't use the word I wanted to use for Mr. Dominguez, but I can't use <laughs> it in public. Come ball has become the conduit through every single bloody reform that Mr. Infantino has thought of, uh, be it... Uh, the new Club World Cup, uh, the extension of the World Cup to 48 teams in 2022. Mm. Every time you would have noticed who is there to pr- make the proposal to FIFA, it's Conmebol. Um, what, what's the latest proposal? A World Cup every two years. Mm. Exactly. I was coming yeah. to that. World Cup every two years. And it's a power struggle uh, between you've got the big clubs or some big clubs and, and, and the rest of, of, of football. You've got the power struggle between UEFA and FIFA. Mm. You've got the power struggle between the supporters, the fans that we are, and what we're given. And it's extraordinary, in the same evening, we're talking about one of the most thrilling games we've seen for a very long time, with two clubs which genuinely, whatever their ownership model could be, are emanations of their communities, and we're talking about this shit. Mm. And, um, and this makes it very difficult to, to manage, I think, for, for all of you, like for all of us, because we wonder at what point are we going to say, well, enough is enough, guys. We don't want this fucking shit. We don't want a World Cup every two years. We don't want the Copa Libertadores being played in the Bernabeu. We don't want a Super League and so forth. But how much do we weigh at the moment a feather? Mm. Well, we'll um, consider this that... positive note. Yeah, we're <laughs> going to take a break. Uh, <laughs> that might be the positive note to end this particular half of the show on. We're going to take a break. Do think of some questions for part two because we'd like to open it up to the audience and, and get your thoughts. We've got some questions off Twitter as well. We're going to come back to footy leaks, but hopefully we can uh, make it a little bit more lighthearted. Oh, of course. Football leaks are very lighthearted. There's some lovely, yeah. lovely yeah. stuff in there. Lovely by sexual abuse in football. Just to, just to Se- keep it. Uh, there, there's that too. Oh, my God. Just, okay. Yeah, just Please my, think of some questions. <laughs> Thank and we'll you. be back in 15 minutes or so. Yes, what you just said. I know. I you. said El Pueblo Unido. I know, I know. It's okay. Okay. We, um, 
we ended the first, <laughs> the first half on a slightly down note, so we're going to try and make it a little bit more lighthearted in the second half. So we're going to start by talking about Brexit and the effect on... <laughs> for, no, we're not at the all. The backstop. <laughs> we're not going to do that, don't worry. We are going to start with the question Even that's Even though it's the in. biggest joke ever uh, invented. Oh, listen, by... I don't need to get you started on this because we all have to go home at some point tonight as well. That's the other thing. Even me. Even you. Yes. Um, we are going to start with a question that came in via Twitter, and that is, uh, maybe we shouldn't celebrate this, but the best foul you've ever seen in a game of football. Uh, will we start with you, Jonathan? If you like. Miguel pointed out in the first half that I was, uh, I was very much playing the hits. I'd gone about Bielsa, obscure Hungarians. I'm going to do it again. Um, <laughs> if, you, if you've been here before, you, you'll have heard me talk about the uh, 1992 FA Cup quarterfinal replay when Sunderland gloriously beat Chelsea, a division above them, 2-1. Um, the, the, best, the best time I've ever had in a football stadium. Apart from obviously sitting next to Miguel for six hours while no game happened last Saturday. Um, <laughs> Rory, to be, uh, I, well, I sat, yeah, I sat beside Rory. Yeah, but Rory's not, yeah you've ruined that. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Cheers. Got to be accurate. So, yeah, Sunderland, second division side, not very good. Let's be honest, back there in 1992, as opposed to now when we're a League One side and not very good. And um, we're playing. The mighty Chelsea of, of Tony Cascarino, uh, Dennis Wise, and some other players. Steve Clark, uh, Dave Besant, um, and Vinnie Jones, which becomes relevant. <laughs> so Sunderland um, have been brilliant in the first half. They won a little bit half time. Should have been about 3-0 up. Fitness is an issue. Um, Chelsea are battering them in the second half. Sunderland hold out, hold out, hold out, hold out. Four minutes of time, Dennis Wise equalises. You think, fuck, we're going to get absolutely murdered next time here. Please, let's have a quick kill. We get a corner. Brian Atkinson, outswinger. Gordon Armstrong from 48 yards, bullet header, bottom corner. 48? It might, it might have been further, you're right. Okay. Yeah. 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 Um, so we're 2-1 up. It's, the game's going into injury time. Everybody's had this massive sort of release of energy. The noise in the football end is like nothing I've ever heard in a football ground. There's these really pure silences at the end of each line of, of the chant because everybody's joining in the chants. It's an extraordinary atmosphere. Everybody's going berserk. And Chelsea are, are, are pressing. And the ball's sort of half cleared and it pops loose. And Vinnie Jones is moving on to it. And our right back is, is John Kay. I don't know if you were John Kay. But John Kay is one of the great legends of the shitter end of the English game. <laughs> he's, a, he's a small man, he's five foot five. He's quite a thin man, but he's also the fucking hardest man who's ever existed. <laughs> and there's two examples of this. So one of them is he, he broke his leg in a game against, I think, Birmingham. Team went blue anyway. And he, he broke his leg in two places. And as they carry him off on the stretcher... He sits up and pretends to be on a ca- in a kayak and starts paddling. <laughs> There's another instance, uh, someone on a pre-season tour of the southwest of England, they're down in Bristol, and they, they, go, they go to a pub for some team bonding, which is very much what pre-season tours are about in, in the golden age of the early 90s. And he, you know, okay, he's got this reputation as being this hard man. 
and he, he goes into the toilet and you know, the local hard nut thinks, I'm going to have a pop at him. I'm going to see you know, if he's really hard. So you know, he goes into the, into the toilet, follows Kane into the toilet and says, right, if you're as hard as you think you are, you and me outside now in the car park. And Kane's five foot five and he looks up at this bloke who's you know, like six six or whatever and goes, well, you know, come on, mate, different weight categories. This isn't fair. But if you're as hard as me, you'll do this. Reaches into the urinal where he's just been pissing, takes out some of the antiseptic cubes and eats them. (laughs) 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 At which the bloke says, okay, fair enough. (laughs) So anyway, it's the 93rd minute of his incredibly tense FA Cup uh, quarterfinal replay. Sunderland are clinging on to this barely deserved 2-1 lead. It's going to be the greatest result in my lifetime, um, which obviously was foremost in the players' minds, but the greatest result Sunderland have had since 1973. And the ball pops loose. And there's Kay, and there's Vinnie Jones. And all Kay has to do is take two paces forward mildly quickly and kick it with his left foot, which, to be fair, was not a strength of his. What he actually does is think, Vinnie Jones... Supposed hard man, I'm really fucking hard. <laughs> I'll nail him. And he lunges in two foot over the ball, straight into like just below the knees of Vinnie Jones. You hear the crunch. Ooh, lovely. And there's this, the, the, the football end has this moment of where everybody's clearly going through exactly the same mental process as me of going, oh, why is he giving away a free kick 25 yards out? Hang on, Casey's just nailed Vinnie Jones. <laughs> Everything goes berserk again. It's, like, it's pretty much as big a noise as when, we, we, when Gordon Armstrong scored his 56-yard header. Just 56? It might, it, it might, might have been further, further yeah. Um, and, yeah, it didn't matter. Chelsea hit the free kick in the wall and it was cleared. But that John Kay foul, so gratuitous, so costly, so brutal, so beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> we, we can't, we can't. How can we top that? We can't top that at all. We should try, though. No, I, I, I can't top that at all. I mean, uh, my favourite foul, I mean, it's n- nowhere near John Kerry's, and, but it, and it happened in a friendly. Yeah. It happened in Dennis Burkham's testimonial. Were you there? No, but it was the first game at the Emirates Stadium. Correct. That's right. And there's one moment when um, Dennis, I mean, Dennis Arsenal team is playing against the Netherlands 11 or something like that. I can't remember what it was. Mm. Anyway, there's a guy called Edgar Davids who is running towards goal. Then a Tottenham player, I believe, as well. Uh, he was a Tottenham player. Mm. Gilles Grimondi, semi-retired, races from the halfway line and absolutely clatters him from behind mm. in the penalty area. And then it's the, what makes, me, makes it the most beautiful foul for me is that, A, it didn't matter, so it didn't cost us a point or anything. <laughs> it was the first game in the new stadium. Edgar Davids was absolutely incensed about it. How can he do such a fucking thing to me? And it was absolutely horrendous. And the expression of Gilles going to the referee saying, oh, you know, it was it was quite very French, Gallic. if you don't mind it me saying. It was very French. You know, say, well, he only got a yellow card. He couldn't get sent off in the testimonial match. Mm. But he'd done to Edgar Davids what we've all wanted him to do for Edgar Davids for a whole season. Yeah. And that was beautiful. That was a good one. It was absolutely beautiful. It was a good one. Gilles Grimondi against Edgar Davids. Just Miguel comes in. The, uh, Gilles Grimondi. I, I don't know if, has anybody read Ray Parler's autobiography? Mm. 
There's a magnificent story is about that, is that, is that a Blizzard being. audience book? I think we're broad church. If you want to, if you want to buy it, it's a great book. It's a great book. It's It's a very, very good book. Yeah. Um, but there's a, there's a great story in there about um, Arsenal on a pre-season tour, um, or pre-season training camp in, I think, Switzerland. Austria. Austria. Okay, Austria. And um, there's, a, there's a bit of a split in the camp that the British lads go out and the foreign lads go out. And uh, one night, Gilles Grandi thinks, I, w- I wonder what they do. I, I want to I go, go and join... Tony Adams and Steve Bold and, and Ray Parler. And so they, they go to this bar and Steve Bold goes, right, my round, what, what are we having? And Guwanda goes, oh, uh, right. <laughs> dry white wine, thanks. <laughs> and there's, there's seven players plus Guimondi. And Bold goes to the bar and goes, um, 49 pints and a dry white wine, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Miguel, have you got a foul? Uh, the boring, obvious answer is, uh, I suppose just because it remains one of the greatest occasions I've been to, was uh, Roy Keane against uh, Holland. But actually, coincidentally, against Overmire, sorry, I actually, I, I think... I, I uh, thought you were going to say, oh, thank uh, Although the brutality of that is quite enjoyable. Yes, absolutely. Um, but I, I, th- I, w- I wonder, have we kind of over-mythologised that here? Because I did something, I had to do something in Chelsea last week on 96-2003 and was speaking to Mario Melchior for it. And I, he, actually, he actually brought up playing, up playing that game in Dublin. And I asked him, uh, so what, what about that challenge in the first minute? What, what happened? So like, the Dutch can't even remember it. Right. But in terms of fouls, um, there is that kind of the giddy, they're not actually really fouls, basically just outright brutality, that giddy thrill of players who always like to just... There's obviously there's been some niggle earlier, and they decide at a certain point in the match, fuck it, I'm doing them. Mm. Uh, which is about and which Keenan Halland is a is a classic of that. Soonest against Bucharest, just the kind of the the thigh high. Was that up. was that the one where he then pointed at his foot as if somehow yes, the guy yeah, had assaulted yeah, yeah. his foot with his shin? Yeah. Oh, look what it, Jesus Christ! But, you know, my that, studs, my beautiful studs. That, that's something else the, the way football is going is taken out of the game that, that, there's too many cameras now it's, ta- it's taken that brutality away the, the slyness uh, the 1980 FA Cup final is one that sticks in my mind is uh, Paul Allen going through on goal disappointing day for me you know uh, all things considered but Willie Young just chopping him down from behind absolutely fantastic which, which led to a change in the law yeah it brought about the straight red card for a professional foul it was just a yellow card on the day. So, so I think half-time arrangers are coming here. Oh, very good. Okay. Thanks very Thank much you. indeed. <laughs> Thank you. Christ almighty. <laughs> Thank you. Um, do we have a question? Does anybody have a question? We've got a guy over here. They say never go back, but that's what Mick McCarthy has done. Um, a former Sunderland manager, so I don't know what you think of that. And giving a, a manager one campaign, qualify or not, you're gone. What do you reckon on succession planning? Well, go. First is the home. I mean, you got the McCarthy thing. It's yeah, but you're, you're Irish. You do it. <laughs> uh, I, 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 honestly, I couldn't give a shit. I really like McCarthy. And I think, I, you know, they were very fond days for me. It was kind of a teenager throughout most of his, his reign. I mean, we qualified. And even the good wins in kind of 98 and 99. And all, the almost qualifications... But I just feel so. Oh, he's done this before, and and ultimately it all just feels like a, a classic John Delaney forge. In, in, in terms of it, it feels like such a political move in the way he's tried to kind of go across 
he's tried to curry the favour of so many different schools of people that are criticising. So on one hand, you've got anyone who's into a bit of nostalgia or just the, the basic name of someone like McCarthy, given that he, he's someone that you know, the fair-weather Irish football fan will, will know. Then on the other hand, you've got like, people who want, you know, the League of Ireland contingent and, and anyone, I suppose, that wanted someone, something more progressive than Stephen Kenny. So we have this bizarre fudge where he gets a job in two years. And I, I, I fear we won't qualify. I hope I'm wrong. And I hope McCarthy does have, still have something in international football. And to be fair, given what's happened to Ipswich since, it does make his job there look, look better, uh, relatively speaking. But I, I don't know, I just have a few misgivings about it, especially given the quality of the team uh, at the moment. Or lack of. Yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, like, something you, you might have not noticed about Miguel tonight is that the way that the light is projected makes him look like an Australian cricketer about to take the field <laughs> with some kind of sun protection. It's very, very odd. I, I, this might be a radical thought, but have you thought, when you're looking for a new manager, of not just looking at people who've done quite a bad job at Sunderland? <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, that's not fair, McCarthy. There, there's also, I mean, we were talking with Andrew, we were talking about the greatest, I, I think, the greatest Irish writer of all times, Flann O'Brien, mm. and, and the way that his greatest novel uh, ends with the beginning, and that's um, The Third Policeman. And I'm wondering, with Mick McCarthy, we're also starting with a new ending? It's this is profound, isn't it? It is. <laughs> really profound. It shouldn't be that obscure a literary reference yeah. in this well, room. Well, what about, you know, it's, as you said, it's like you're coming back, you know, what's the, what's the point? It's like we, if we took Aimé Jacquet to... Yeah. Succeed, Didier Deschamps, please, wait, wait, no, wait, wait, not wait, that, do, please, do, not that. The one thing you would say is that international football is a bit odd, and it's about it. It, do, it doesn't conform to the same kind of yeah, characteristics or patterns as the club game because the club game is now so sophisticated and so far ahead of it, particularly in, in terms of the time managers have. And maybe, I mean, for, for as bad as the O'Neill regime got for the first two years or first three years, maybe it did work, and that kind of emotional management was enough. And from everything you hear about McCarthy as well, there's a lot of that. Um, there's a famous story, actually, I think Danny Taylor told us in The Guardian once, where he found himself, he went, he went to the toilet before Ireland against Portugal in June 2001 and found himself beside the Irish dressing room. He could hear everything that McCarthy was saying. And he called it basically the most rudimentary uh, team talk he's ever heard. It was just basically a load of fucks and get into them for about 10 minutes. <laughs> Uh, and I, so if it, maybe that could be enough for, for two years and it could work in that sense so that, that's perhaps the hope a load of fucks and get into them <laughs> sounds like a Saturday night anyway uh, we had another question <laughs> up there there's a man here with a, a beard <laughs> lots of beards here tonight uh, yeah it's about Jose can he do it anywhere else? Or we come to the comedy moment of the evening. Yeah, pretty much. Um, can he do it at any other club? Like, where does he go from here? Or is it because United are that much like a shit to shop? in the airport? Well, it's a little bit like the Mazzurza situation. There's a limited number of clubs I suspect that he will be prepared to take on. Um, I mean, yeah, that's where where football has changed. That so you look at say something like Brian Clough. That he when he takes over Leeds, Leeds are one of the top, maybe the top team in England, certainly in the top two or three teams in England, and in the top ten in Europe. And it's not an unusual progression for him. I mean, okay, Brighton maybe is an unusual progression, but then to go to Forest, 
is um, it, it, it sort of made sense for him to drop down into the, the middle of a second flight. Um, I can't see Jose dropping down and becoming manager of thinks desperately a team is in the middle of a championship. Bristol City, are they in the middle of a championship? I think so. Well, yeah, good, good. But he's, he's not going to do that. He wants one of the top dozen teams. And what's clearly going to happen when he leaves United is there is literally none of those super clubs will want him. Well, I mean, the, 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 maybe the, Italy. W- w- maybe w- Italy is the only place he could go. But what Wolves could be, depending on how his career goes. Yeah, I mean, w- Wolves is a possibility for very, very specific reasons. Obviously, his relationship with with uh, George Mendes. But I mean, that that's that's a decision based on politics and business and friendship. Mm rather than based on, on cold logic. Um, so you imagine he goes to a national job. Do you remember when Mourinho was at Madrid and still very much at his peak despite the problems already going there? And in one of, his, one of these typical snide comments, it's pretty much come back to haunt him now in the past two or three years as basically former rivals line up to beat him. Uh, but when he, when he referred to Manuel Pellegrini and he said, when I leave Real Madrid, I don't go to a club like Malaga. And his, I mean, ultimately, and you see in every single press conference, every single media appearance, what ultimately matters to Mourinho more than anything isn't so much the welfare of his club, but how what's happening reflects on him. Uh, and I think, and obviously, his next job would feed into that as well. I think someone like Inter would take him back. Um, Real, no, no other Italian club. I mean, he couldn't go to Juve. Yeah, so. Juve no hates him. Yeah, and I just think he, he's pissed off so many people hmm. that. You know, he, he's running out of potential employers. And I, I, my, my suspicion is that in all the many, many bad moments Josie's had in the last uh, six years or so, the worst was probably when Portugal beat France in the final yeah, of the year yeah, 2016. Because yeah. he wanted to be the yeah. man who won Portugal their first, first major tournament. Actually, I, do remember, I remember a classic moment when he was at Chelsea in the title season in 2014-15. Well, not so, so much a classic moment, but quite a right-wing moment. When Mourinho, um, he was talking about the Portuguese team, and he, he literally came up with the words, <laughs> when I'm Portuguese manager, it'll be Portugal. It won't be Portugal and friends. Uh, I, I, think that was in, I think that was in relation to Pepe, to be fair, and kind of players like naturalised Brazilians. But even still, it's... Uh... I, I would say that um, I think we shouldn't be too um, uh, romantic about Jose. If Literally nobody's ever been romantic. No, I, I know. I, I think you could see in my Gallic eyebrows that um, there was a hint of perhaps scepticism about the words I was uttering. Uh, somebody who takes 1.5 million from Vladimir Putin's propaganda channel to... Uh, Stan Collymore. Uh, uh, Journalist. Y- you? You did as well. No. no. Um, no. Uh, so he did it. Um, I think money counts a lot for him. I think in terms of clubs, one which is a possibility for him in the future is Paris Saint-Germain. They don't agree. They don't agree. No, but for, does he play the right type of yeah. football from, from, that PSG want to play? Well, PSG do not play any type of football. But, but, but they are. PSG have got... They're just like a kid... This is like a guy who goes to the races and decides to bet on every horse so that he can win. That's the way well, they do it. Yeah, but they the, buy, the, they the, put a bet on every they, single they, horse and they, they would at least fucking generate win at the end. YouTube Sorry? clips of kind of quite nice goals yeah. on a regular basis in France because they score eight every week. Well, I, I, one, the of the be- they one of the best goals I ever saw Chelsea scored was uh, when Jose Mourinho was a manager in, when he came back uh, and uh, it was a Fabregas... Oscar 
Against Swansea, was it? Against... Perhaps, yes. An absolutely magnificent oh, yeah, combination. Yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. gorgeous, beautiful. Yeah. When they were actually playing some really beautiful football in the first three months of his comeback. Yeah, yeah but then PSG's leaders aren't going to accept playing a Trivotte against Amiens. <laughs> <laughs> no, but Neymar would have exactly well, the kind of manager who, who yeah. him he likes, which is do what the fuck you want yeah. to do, and which is what Jose Mourinho does with his but forwards. I, 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 he could do that. I'd On agree. the other hand, and I'm serious here, I think he could go just to a job that pays very, very, very well, and um, wherever it is. So n not so much about the prestige, but about the pay packet. Give me the money. Yeah. Yep. I mean, uh, on a on a very amateur psychologist note on Mourinho and his relationship with money. You've just written a book about him. Yes, I mean, I, I don't want to go on about potential Christmas presents you really should buy for your friends and family. But in my book, The Barcelona Legacy, which is available in bookshops on Amazon, all over the internet, um, one of the things I talk about is how Mourinho, as a kid had a very, very privileged upbringing. His it's very difficult to imagine Mourinho as a kid. Apart from it, like a little brat, like just going <laughs> in the corner. And you, know, you have all these you know, great stories of, of, of footballers where, who grow up playing barefoot with a ball made of rolled up socks or newspaper on, the, you know, on streets where they have to clear off a broken glass first. Mourinho's first experience of football was having pot shots against a servant in the garden. Because his, his uncle he, um, from Guimaraes um, had the sardine concession, which obviously sardines were a massive Portuguese export, or remain a massive Portuguese export. And the, um, uh, the, the very right-wing government at the time, the, the Estado Novo, uh, his, his uncle was very well connected within that. When, when Salazar fell, and actually Salazar literally fell. The story of Salazar's end... <laughs> Is, is, is amazing. He had, a, he, um, he had a brain aneurysm in the bath and fell. And was he was not lying down in the bath? And it was, well, he was standing up to get out of the bath, I assume. Okay. Right. I mean, if he's bathing standing up, there's problems anyway. <laughs> or it's a very deep bath, I guess, maybe. Yeah, maybe so. <laughs> um, but he didn't drown, so probably... Anyway. Um, and it was assumed he wouldn't recover. So they, they, his deputy takes over as president of Portugal and Salazar's just dumped in a hospital bed. Then, unfortunately for everybody concerned, Salazar does recover. And so their way of dealing with this is what I think Arsenal should have done with Arsene Wenger about three years ago, is just have some civil servants who hung around him and pretended he was running the country. So that's like the Sopranos. And like, yeah. came back with reports going, oh, the economy's grown by 14% this year. <laughs> Sardine exports have gone through the roof. <laughs> While the actual manager... Carry, the actual president, sorry, um, <laughs> carried on you know, running, running the place. But when Salazar fell, uh, Mourinho's uncle lost all his money, lost all his, you know, uh, all, all, all his, his business interests. As Mourinho was plunged from being incredibly wealthy, he was never poor, but he was a lot poorer than he'd been used to being. And so I think he has a, an awareness of the fragility of wealth and probably a drive to accumulate more and more that somebody who hadn't had that, that fall wouldn't have. But one of the most indicative stories in that which oh. brilliant Diego Torres book is when like, he called George Mendes in the Real Madrid uh, training ground and he calls like, Casillas and Ramos over, hey, this is the guy here, this is the guy with the... You won't believe the money this guy has. And just the utter fascination as the, kind of, the players look at him and kind of, what's he doing here? 
probably has a few quid stashed away. I think he'll be all right, Jose, for a while, money-wise. We think so, yeah. We think so. Before we take another couple of questions and, and we finish it up, we've uh, one that came in off Twitter. Um, in the light of what happened in the Merseyside derby and Jordan Pickford's inexplicable decision, uh, well, the strangest goal. Well, the strangest I, goal you've ever seen. I, I, I can give you a, an example immediately. Um, the strangest goal for me was the final of Euro 2016 when somebody who's never scored before, never scored afterwards, scored <laughs> the winning goal in the final. Eder. I mean, anybody who's watched Lille play with Eder would have wondered. For Swansea. Yes. <laughs> did he play for Swansea? He, he came on as a sub. Did he actually? Uh, did he, he come on? He came on as a sub. I remember he came on as a sub. He, he scored game. a fantastic goal in that yeah. final. But it's one of those things. I think things. he made his Davis Swansea in the Avi Carnero game. Yeah. But it's yeah, one of those true, guys yeah. like, you know, you've got one-hit wonders like... Um, John Jensen. Uh, Norman Greenbaum Jr., like Spirits in the Sky, you know, something like that. Oh, you're talking music. I was, I was, yeah, I was yeah, sticking with football. I okay, well, I was going to music. What this but was. never mind. But he, <laughs> had, he was a one-hit wonder, and that was the strangest goal ever. And it cost us the uh, and Didier Deschamps. <laughs> uh, it cost uh, uh, Didier Deschamps the uh, European title. G- given how much you dislike Deschamps, is the net I absolutely? I quite like him as a person, but okay. as a manager, it's probably impos- you know he incarnates everything I hate about Mm-mm. management. Sorry, he's, he's also, he, uh, sorry. I'm very proud he, well, of having he, a second he, he star on my Ripica shirt. He, he's also been at Juve '98 and was named in documents in the, with correct. the levels, and at Marseille '93. You're absolutely uh, correct. <laughs> this guy is right. <laughs> so we haven't. We, no, have no, we said coincidentally. No, no, we haven't said anything. No. Strange goal, Miguel. Anything you um, Maybe a slightly odd choice in itself, but Ronaldinho against England 2002, and it's the one, uh, the one goal where. I wouldn't be able to say either way whether he meant it or not. Like you know, when you see when you see those goals, there's all usually instinctively kind of come down either side. I, I still can't actually figure it out. And and even to try that, if you have to try that shot itself, the trajectory is so weird. It, it, the whole goal is very is very odd. Mm. Yeah, poor old Seaman. But a... but did Seaman mean it either? <laughs> That's the question. That's... With the with the Katogan, you're sort of flapping in the wind. It was strange. He. That happened to him a few times. Naeem. Naeem, yeah. Feet of clay. What? Feet of clay, Seaman. Yeah, yeah. And have you got a strange goal? Yeah, I mean, I was trying to think of something kind of a little bit more, more obscure, but I think... Really? I have something from the Hungarian second division, <laughs> 1942. Oh, something to do with Sunderland, perhaps. Yeah, well, I'll come back to Sunderland, obviously. Um, I think Darren Bent's beach ball goal against Liverpool, because that was fucking hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, that was a good one. All right. Have we got a question? Another question from the audience? Okay, we've got a man here with a blue shirt. Cheers. Um, if I can just quickly touch on Sunderland for a moment. Um, oh, please do. Yeah, I don't think we've mentioned them enough this evening. Quick, the quick, League quickly, One Giants. Yeah. My my team is St Mirren. So when I see Jack Ross in charge and how bad St Mirren are doing now, I kind of look at Sunderland as the kind of not as good looking. Girlfriend, a guy who has stolen my girl with more money, so I'm kind of a bit bitter over Sunderland, so I'm not going to hold that against you very much. But um, I just kind of want to go back to the start where you were talking about the kind of divide between big clubs and, uh, and small clubs in the kind of big, big um, leagues in Europe. How, how do you think leagues are, are, are kind of um, 
organisations stop that divide kind of widening as it already is? Because I know recently kind of there was the salary report that showed that, that, that France's league is literally the most divided league in the world. So how do you kind of, how do you stop that? Financial fair play was supposed to do that, wasn't it? But yeah, that's yeah, yeah, but it was never going to. Financial no. fair play reified the the, the, the the stratification you already had. No, but it is. He, it's, I'm slightly conflicted on financial fair play because it, it 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 has stopped clubs going out of business, which was a massive, massive problem for for a lot, especially the early 2000s. Um, but yet, you're right. It completely it, it restricts anyone who isn't based in a massive city, essentially. Or, or has a kind of that huge support base. Um, I, I, I personally think, rather worryingly, leagues are past the point no return. And, and because I think, as you, even I suppose as you were referencing with Scudamore, it feels like every move now isn't necessarily to shorten the gap. It's basically to, it's to stop. Because it, it, all, all the four, all the influence in football is coming from big clubs looking to widen the gap, looking to get more and more money. And the leagues are just going to, Every with every decision they take is trying to stop that. So it's. I mean, just to, just as an example, I don't think people. I think it's very easy not to realise how bad the situation is. So, they. Do you know how many games the the richest six clubs in England? So you know the, the yeah, pieces yeah. of big six. Do you know how many games they've lost to the bottom fourteen this season? After what, have we played thirteen games or fourteen games? 14. 14 games. So, like, more than a third of the way through the season. Do you know how many games the, the, the big six have lost to the 14? None. United have lost to West Ham. Well, United, United have lost three. In a historically bad season, United have lost three. And Tottenham lost to Watford. And that is it. Yeah. In a weird... And like, that is a terrible, terrible situation. Because... If it's endures, when when a Huddersfield or a Burnley or a Cardiff or you know whoever down near the bottom of the league goes away to the Etihad or Anfield, why on earth should they play their first eleven? If you can't win, if that first eleven is so weak by comparison, your chances of winning are you know one in twenty, one in thirty, one in forty. Why? Why bother? Play and, and, and then get you get you go to the, you get the, the you go to the Neil Warnock, the anagram mm. um, <laughs> argument, which is basically this is not what our season depends yeah. on. Therefore, we can almost forget yeah, I mean, about this those theoretical games. Um, this theoretical sort of regulation that you have to play your strongest team at all times. Which um, brings us back to Mick McCarthy. Uh, Wolves. Who was the Wolves manager yeah. who got done under that? McCar- McCarthy. Yeah. Sorry. Of course. Thank yeah. Um, I mean, God, if he does that with Ireland, how will he tell? Oh. But actually, it probably is the case. The best thing for the club yeah. is not to expose your best players to being battered five 0 and run ragged by the best yeah. team in the, in the league, and and that's. That's not a failure of that club. It's a failure of the league. And that's a massive problem. In, 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 in that sense, strange... can I just, I mean, to throw it out there, as awful as a European Super League would be, and nobody's really a great fan of that, would it provide a measure of equalisation in domestic leagues if the big teams were gone or not as involved? It, it in... could do. It could do. We, I mean, we probably have to accept that. You know, it depends how many teams from, Eng- from England went into the Super League. Um... But say it's six. It was five. Tottenham weren't included. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I 
It's true, they weren't. Football leaks I mean, never lies. And how would you feel about that, watching Tottenham win the league every season for 20 years? Winning the league? It doesn't matter anymore. It's different. <laughs> <laughs> They've novelled it. As you it. scrape around, to be 17th <laughs> exactly. No, no, league. no, we'll be like ninth in the European Super League every year. It'd be great. No relegation, which of course makes football really interesting. And, and of course, um, UEFA, which has taken some pretty good decisions of late, notably the Nations League, which I think we all agree is a success, uh, has decided uh, yesterday in Dublin uh, to create this third European competition, which unfortunately, as far as my wishes were concerned, was not a recreation of the Cup Winners' Cup, which I would have loved. Ah, nostalgia. Um, but a Europa League 2. Europa League 2. Yep. The whatever. The idea being that you have more associations involved in a European competition, which is not a bad idea in itself, but it's very much a top-down as in uh, upstairs, downstairs, so to speak. Yeah. We are the ruling class, then there's the middle class, then there's a proletariat. Yeah, yeah. But I, mean, I, I, I agree with you, but I also understand the logic that um, it, it, it's easy for us from the perspective of people who, who sort of our... The, you know, the, the Premier League is what we, we grasp, and we see that Burnley have been fucked over this season by being the Europa League. Somehow it's knocked their equilibrium. They don't know how to deal with, with trying to, to, to balance that briefly, as it turned out, with, with the league. And so we understand that the seventh team from, from the Premier League that qualifies for Europe habitually struggles. They never quite get their head around it, whether that's Everton, whether it's Southampton, whoever. There's a, the whole recent history of that seventh team struggling in the Europa League. But if you are... For instance, the the champion of Macedonia, yep. and you, your your TV budget for the Macedonian league is by Premier League standards nothing, and you get one game or two games in the qualifiers of the Champions League, and like maybe maybe you have a good season, you beat the team that came second in Belarus, and you go through, and then oh no, we've drawn Celtic, we've got beat. You still want six games in Europe because that's how you get your money. But doesn't that cause a problem then further down and the league? And that then caused a problem in their league. Yeah. But that, I mean, that, that's, that's the problem with the disparity. When the, when the top is so much richer than the bottom, whatever yeah. redistribution you have is always going to have steps. That's always going to be a problem. I'm not sure whether cutting the Macedonian league, as an example, adrift by saying actually no entry to the... or you get one game. I'm not sure that's healthy. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure denying them these extra games is healthy. I'm not sure giving them the extra games is healthy. Yeah. In some ways, Leicester City winning the Premier League was actually one of the worst things that could happen. Oh, it was a disaster. Because it, was it, a disaster. It, it, because it covered up this problem. And, and it was a, and and not only that, that season was so bizarre. Mm. Like, and I've talked to you about this recently. Philippe, in that season, 2015 16, yes. and feel free to shout out with a level of decorum mm. if you Go know on. the answer to this. Liverpool finished 8th that season, cool. Chelsea finished 10th. Which teams finished 5th and 6th? Uh, sixth and seventh. Sorry, sixth and seventh. Holy. So to- Tottenham was second. No, Arsenal were second. Arsenal, was, <laughs> Arsenal were Mark. second. I knew again. Second Arsenal place. was second. Tottenham were third. On the last Man day. City were fourth. The, the, fourth. They were fourth, really. And United were seventh. The Champions League. So who was fifth and sixth? No, United were fifth. United were fifth. Okay, who was sixth and seventh? Fuck's sake. Who was sixth and seventh? Southampton. Somebody said Southampton. And West Ham. Wow. And to be honest... Them finishing that high up 
is itself remarkable, completely overlooked by Leicester. So we all wrote these kind of ludicrous pieces, going, oh, the rise of the middle class of the Premier League. You know, there's so much money in the game now that having twice as much as anybody else doesn't make any difference because it's so much that, you know, you can pay a player 300 grand a week, you can pay him 600 grand a week. It's all the same. It looks really fucking stupid now. <laughs> but, but, but also it's given people to say, well, if Leicester have done it, the hope is always there. Any time you bring up the economic disparity, the, the obvious res- or the immediate response is Leicester. But ultimately, the Leicester story is so great is because it was a miracle for a reason. It really was a 4,000 to 1 shot, or 5,000 to 1, whatever the figures were. And, it, and, and that speaks to the problem in the league. Yeah. I think the takeaway from this evening is that football is absolutely fucked, basically. <laughs> yeah. Ba- basically. Yeah. But we do have time for one more question, though. So uh, we have a man at the back there with a hand up, so... The guy with the mic doesn't have to go too far. So this will be the final question of the evening, and then we've got to call it quits. He's over the other side. Oh, yeah. The, the pressure on this bloke. Final oh, absolutely. Question. Final question. You don't question. want to fuck this up. F- feeling, feeling the pressure. Better be, better be good. You've, spe- you've speculated on the future of club football and of league football and the business aspects of football. Given that, hard one. G- given that we're um, constantly told that Football without fans is nothing. What's the future of fandom? Well, well, actually, one thing in that regard, and I, want to, I was thinking this earlier, and this obviously doesn't relate to kind of fans going to stadiums so much, but ultimately a lot of people watch on TV. I do wonder whether plural, plurality of media is going to affect fandom a bit, because ultimately people can't keep affording these four or five subscriptions. Mm. I, I think the Spanish league is completely fucked up by going to uh, 11 Sport because I think the, t- the takeoffs have been low. But, but I do wonder, I mean, in, usually in the, these arguments, competition is healthy. In this sense, I don't think it is because it means people have to pay a lot more to just watch football. And I do wonder, is that going to be one first potential step in people turning off? Um, if you get enough people to hate something, they'll come together despite their other differences. That's yeah, maybe yeah. part of the Or even to be indifferent something. It turns out that en masse, we're quite indifferent to the Spanish league. We, we, we don't care enough about the Spanish league to bother to get 11 sports. Yeah, when it was e- just Even gone. those of us for whom it's our job, mm. you know, I ended up not even watching the Classico this season. I, I, I've got a subscription to 11 sports because it's tax deductible. <laughs> <laughs> and I can charge it to my employer. <laughs> but uh, in terms of fandom... But, I, I, unfortunately, what happens is that what you've got in this kind of... Um, it's a bit like the big Oklahoma rush. Is that you suddenly, st- under starter's orders, everybody rushes, get your 3.5 acres and a mule, whatever. Mm. And it's a complete free-for-all, so to speak, because nothing is for free in this particular universe. But they're all going for the same model. What we are seeing is, at the moment, things like uh, DA Zone... Uh, 11 Sports, uh, Facebook, yeah. and basically GAFA are going for all the rights. And it's fucking Wild West out there, and it's, there are going to be some people who are not going to survive about it. But in the end, what will survive is a model of broadcasting football, which is streaming, with no reporting, mm. no sports news, just like, this is the game. But, but, but that's the odd thing, that... And but how can we, if you cannot, you know, that's, that's the thing you were talking about, 11 sports and Italy and, and Spain, which is a big problem for us as journalists and uh, as sports fans. 
um, where do you go from there? Because you, unless you go to some kind of Azerbaijani mm-hmm. website where you know that um, Miguel, you know, your bank details... Hey, we don't, we don't know about your Azerbaijani okay, website. Maybe not Miguel. <laughs> um, but you, you have no choice. You're put in a position, even though some of these uh, enterprises might fail, the model is the right one. It's a model of pure exploitation, which is why I come back to what I was saying earlier on. There's a moment where we're going to have be, we, we, we will be faced with, do you want to drop the mic or not? Yeah. But, but that's the odd thing as well. I mean, say if you compare it to the music industry, they've relatively successfully tackled piracy through making it so easy to, down, to download. Well, because b- basically Spotify is, yeah, yeah, is, yeah. is piracy. Exactly. But, but, but this is the thing. Football, it doesn't feel quite ready for that yet. I mean, people will stream matches for free illegally, but they're not quite ready to make the leap if it's a massive game. They, it's, it still feels like actually football is anchored to the TV, TV, TV era a bit because people, when it's a big game, people want to watch it on TV, they want the kind of communal experience, and you're still not going to pay to watch football on, some, on your laptop screen. But, but, I mean, the, I, mean the I was asking about... for a length of rope earlier on, but I mean, could we have, I don't know... Um, some cable here. Yes, absolutely. But the question about fandom, I think, is interesting because, and I, 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 I want to make clear before I say this that I recognise this is a failing on my part. It's a thing I do not understand, and I do not wish to be prescriptive in what being a fan is. But I am a Sunderland fan because I was born in Sunderland to a father who supported Sunderland, whose father had supported Sunderland, whose father had supported Sunderland. Going to Sunderland games was in no sense a choice. It was just a thing. It was a part of who I am. And I really, really struggle to understand how the fortunes of a team can affect the emotional state of a kid in Lagos or or, or Dublin or... Washington or Los Angeles or Beijing or Bangalore I don't get how if you just picked your team when it's not ingrained in you when it's not part of your DNA uh, your, your, or your whether, whether because it's where you've grown up whether it's because um, you, you have a family link if you don't have something that's an intrinsic part of your identity I don't get why you care that much and I don't get why if you support a crap team, as Sunderland unfortunately have been quite a lot in my lifetime, uh, I, think, I think we're up to 10 relegations now, but I mean, honestly, who, who counts after the fourth one? Um, why would you not just leave them? Well, you know, you leave a bad marriage. Like, why, why? But this goes back to the city thing. If City, say, were to unanchor themselves from Manchester, it's basically just a global support. Well, but but this, yeah, this is exactly the point. That the the Super League future to which I think we're heading, where fans are not um, not predominantly local to that club, where the club is um, it, 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 it loses its responsibility to, to to its immediate community, where its fans are are global. Well, that makes it a lot easier for the club because it can go wherever it wants. It can go where the money is. Why is it that the Etihad of all the grounds in the Premier League is the deadest, the most depressing stadium to go to. There is nothing happening there. Because even the people who are supporters and genuine supporters of Manchester City, and there are plenty of those, 
don't recognize themselves mm. in what is happening there. And it, and yeah. it is, it is absolutely... For me, I absolutely fucking hate going to the Etihad because... Oh, well, the food's great, come on. Over, the over, food over, overrated, overrated. is excellent. But I mean, it's not as good as Chelsea, it's not as good as Arsenal. But, but the it, is, is it is so much better than United. The atmosphere yeah. is awful, and what is awful about it is that even though people are watching one of the great teams of our age, and they genuinely are, with one of the great managers and some wonderful players, there is no connection. Yeah. And you can feel that. Well, I, and one of the absolute telling points, and you're probably going to, is the fact that Europe means yeah. absolutely nothing to them. But it, it, it has such, like, what's happened in cities has such a strange effect on the fans. I think there is actually a noticeable split between the, kind of the younger fans who are more accustomed, I suppose, to 10 years now of extreme, of a state's wealth. <laughs> and then the bizarre effect on some of the older fans who are kind of juggling what they see a city as this kind of neurotic club and, and have this kind of this hang-up about how they, they think the media hates them because there was more fixation in United and how they square that with criticism of the regime. I mean, some of... Yeah, I mean, the whole self-image was on yeah. being the poor neighbour, on yeah. being kind of authentic. And now they're, they're really rich and unauthentic and brilliant. And that, I think, is very difficult for them. But, but and I think City maybe, is a maybe we should go for dinner now. City <laughs> is a circus I'm stop. I know you're going to call an end to that, but that's one thing I would like to... Please. <laughs> and it's a circus stop. Um, is that the minute that the show is over, they'll be out of town and there'll be nothing left. Believe me, there will be nothing left. Thank you very much, Manchester City. <laughs> the official account is following me on Twitter and everything else. I'm sure it will be find very easy to get an interview get with any Manchester City player in the near future. It's but good. that's what I wanted it's to good. say. Well, look, it's good that we finished on an apocalyptic note, <laughs> Philippe. So. That's absolutely fine. <laughs> uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed for coming. Your panel this evening, Philippe Claire, Miguel Delaney, Jonathan Wilson. 